Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 3rd, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present the 11th and final part of our commentary on the first epistle of John. It is titled, The Truth of God. Coming near the end of my preparation for this this afternoon, or I should say really earlier this evening, I realized that I probably should have got two more presentations out of the balance of this chapter, so I feel like I've given it some short shrift. Nevertheless, it's over 10,000 words for just a handful of verses. Some of them copied from my old Scatterers and Gatherers presentation, probably about two and a half pages, but I tried to condense what I could, and I thought it was quite necessary to present that. So here we are. In our commentary on the opening verses of 1 John chapter 5, we had discussed the spirit, the water, and the blood. And now we shall resume that discussion here, as there is still much to consider in regard to verses 7 and 8 of this chapter. That is where we left off last week. I hardly scratched the surface with those two verses. However, first we shall offer a summation of some of our remarks concerning verse 6 of the chapter, where John had written, speaking in reference to Christ himself, that this is he having come through water and blood, Yahshua Christ, not by water only, and that's an important statement, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit which testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. By writing this, John the Apostle placed an emphasis on the importance of Christ having come into the world through blood. And since all living creatures have blood, either man or beast, it must have been John's intention to refer to a particular blood. As we have also elucidated, Paul of Tarsus had explained the same thing in a different way, where he had written that Christ was bound to come in the same flesh which belonged to his children. In Hebrews chapter 2, where he wrote that, therefore, since the children have taken part in flesh and blood, he also in like manner took part in the same. For surely not that of angels has he taken upon himself, but he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren. And that is a very important statement. It is also evident that Christ had come for the children of that same flesh and blood, as he himself had professed that he came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 15. The children of which Paul had spoken are indeed the genetic children of Abraham, as they must be the brethren of Christ, who was of the seed of Abraham. And in Paul's words, they were brethren before Christ had come. The blood of verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, of the first epistle of John, must be the same blood of verse 6. And the simple presence of men of his same blood here on earth 
giving their testimony of him is in itself an attestation to the truth and fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the ancient children of Israel. So, as we made the assertion that John's use of the word blood here in verse 6 is a reference to the race or nation of origin of the Christ, while water referred only to the natural birth itself, we also asserted that John must have used the word for blood in the same manner in chapter 1 of his gospel, in verse 13. And we found that citing that Joseph Thayer, in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, agrees with that conclusion, citing John 1.13 and stating, that since the first germs of animal life are thought to be in the blood, the word serves to denote generation and origin in the classics also. However, even with that candid admission of truth, Thayer ignored the fact that in that passage, John had used the term in the plural and in a negative context. So when we translated that chapter of John's Gospel, we interpreted the phrase, which literally means not from bloods, to mean not of mixed origin, since if blood refers to one's origin, as Thayer had stated, then in that same context, bloods must refer to multiple origins, which for people is to be of mixed origin. In this manner, our translation of that passage in John chapter 1 is fully vindicated, where we wrote, But as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain to those believing in his name, not those from of mixed origin, referring to the Edomite bastards of Judea, nor from of the desire of the flesh, the lusts of men, who very easily are seduced by alien women, nor from the will of man, because man doesn't decree what's authentic and what is not. It's already decreed in the law of Yahweh. Nor from the will of men, but they who have been born from Yahweh. After having stressed the importance of Yahshua's having been born, not by water only, but by water and blood, we read in verses 7 and 8, For there are three bearing witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in one. There's one body of Christ. Yet we do not believe that he meant to refer to Christ alone, or to the Holy Spirit when he wrote those words. Rather, John, having used a present tense verb, it was the apostles of Christ and their immediate disciples who were testifying of him in that time, in John's time. And being one with Christ in the Spirit, while also being of the same blood, collectively they are the witness of which John was speaking. As we read in Acts chapter 1, in words attributed to Christ, speaking to his disciples in the moments before his ascension, he told them, 
Rather, you shall receive power of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the end of the earth. In this aspect did they also fulfill the prayer which Christ had made concerning them, which is found in John chapter 17, where he said, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. In his own epistles, Paul of Tarsus explained this as the body of Christ. Furthermore, John himself had stated in the opening verses of chapter 4 of this epistle that there are spirits bearing the gospel of Christ where he was referring to men. This is found in verse 2 where he wrote, By this you know the spirit of Yahweh. Each spirit which, it pro which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh is from of Yahweh. So the spirit, the water, and the blood are men of kindred origin who have turned to Christ, and for that reason they stand as witnesses to the truth of God. And since they're one, perhaps I should write, they stand as a witness to the truth of God. In the promises of the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh, we see that Yahweh referred to himself as the God of truth. In Isaiah chapter 65, speaking of the sins of ancient Israel and Judah, where the word of Yahweh says in part, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob. And out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and my elect shall inherit it, Jacob, Israel, and Judah, and my servant shall dwell there. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but ye shall cry for sorrow of heart, and shall howl for vexation of spirit, and you shall leave your name, the subject being Jerusalem, for a curse unto my chosen. For Yahweh God shall slay thee and call his servants by another name. That he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes. Likewise, we read in Zechariah chapter 8, in verse 2. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy. This is 520 BC, long after the deportations and captivities. And I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith Yahweh, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of Yahweh of hosts, the holy mountain, the mountain being the people, Zion representing the people. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I will save my people, I skip to verse 7, from the east country and from the west country, 
and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. So here in verses 7, 6, 7, and 8, John explained that it is the Spirit which testifies because the Spirit is truth, is the truth. As the children of Israel, scattered abroad, are being reconciled to Yahweh in Christ. For the same reason, Paul of Tarsus had written in chapter 15 of his Epistle to the Romans, that therefore I say, Yahshua Christ came to be a minister of circumcision in behalf of the truth of Yahweh. So he must have come with the intention of fulfilling the words of the God of truth. He must have come for the reconciliation of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, not for anyone else. There's no word in the Old Testament scriptures, in prophecies and promises of God, for anyone else. For the confirmation of the promises of the fathers, to finish Romans chapter 15, verse 8. And the nations, in verse 9, we shouldn't say Gentiles. And the nations, for the sake of mercy, honor Yahweh, just as it is written. For this reason, I will profess you among the nations, and I will sing of your name. And again, it says, citing Deuteronomy chapter 32, I believe, the Song of Moses, in reference to the tribes of the children of Israel, Rejoice, nations, with his people. As Paul had earlier explained in that same epistle, in chapter 4, those nations to which he referred were the children of Israel, as he described the faith of Abraham, who contrary to expectation, Romans 4.18, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, According to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. As it was under the old covenant, so it is under the new covenant. That Christ, confirming the promises to the fathers on behalf of the truth of God, came only for the lost sheep of the ancient children of Israel, for their legitimate descendants. And any other interpretation is a lie. As for the text of our translation, here in 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, the King James Bible has a longer version of verses 7 and 8 of this chapter, which were evidently inserted by certain scribes no earlier than the 10th century, and they do not appear in any Greek manuscript which dates prior to that time. Ostensibly, the words were added in order to lend further support to the so-called Trinity Doctrine, in order to exhibit how readily certain men were willing to corrupt the scriptures so that they could support their own false doctrines or wicked agendas. Here we shall read verses 7 and 8 with the added words. For there are three bearing witness, and now the added words, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. 
And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth. And now back to the authentic portion. The spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in one. So all that should say is, for there are three bearing witness, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in one. That's all it should say. So while we must reject those added words, we do see that whoever first added them had understood that it was the spirit, the water, and the blood which were testifying in the earth. And therefore, our assertion that the authentic portions of 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 do refer to the apostles and disciples of Christ that is corroborated by the author of the spurious edition. Not that we need his testimony, but that's fitting that trying to create a lie, he helps us prove the truth. In Latin texts, there are various versions of this edition, which are similar to this insertion in verses 7 and 8 found here in the King James Version which is, of course, based on the Greek manuscripts, on late Greek manuscripts, I may add. No manuscripts earlier than the time of Erasmus. But they are not exactly the same. Some of those Latin versions add considerably more words to the text than we have here in the King James Version. In various forms, these editions are found in the Latin Vulgate, in the Latin text of Clement of Alexandria, but evidently not in the Greek copies of his writings, because he originally wrote in Greek, and also in some of the Syriac translations of John's epistle. Adding to the scriptures, men actually wrestle with and corrupt the truth of God. Adding people of other races to the covenants and the promises made to the fathers men further contend with God himself, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, since it is manifest that the authentic text of the passage in verses 7 and 8 refer to the testimony of men, John continues by stating in verse 9, where we left off in our last presentation with 1 John chapter 5, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of Yahweh is greater. And we shall pause at this point in verse 9. Writing to the Corinthians, sometime towards the end of his three-year sojourn in Ephesus, which is described in Acts chapter 19, Paul of Tarsus had attested in chapter 15 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, For you are among the first that I had transmitted to that which I had also received that Christ had been slain for our errors, or sins, in accordance with the writings, referring to passages such as Isaiah chapter 53, and that he had been buried, and that he was raised in the third day, in accordance with the writings. For instance, Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, which we will cite, a little later on this evening. And that he had appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Thereafter, he had appeared to more than 500 brethren at the same time, 
of whom the greater number remain until presently, but some have died. Evidently, those words were written between 55 and 58 AD, where Paul said, you are among the first that I had transmitted to that which I had also received. He was in Corinth much earlier, in 50 to 52 AD. So he's writing them back long after his first sojourn in Corinth, which actually lasted for at least 18 months at that time. So these words in Paul's epistle were written at least 26 years after the resurrection. These witnesses, these 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, they were the spirit and the water and the blood who had been giving testimony concerning Christ throughout those early decades. And their credibility is the reason why we are Christians today, referring to the lost children of Israel, who are of that same blood and who have returned to Yahweh their God in Christ. There are no other legitimate Christians. The only people that could be Christians are the subjects of the promises and covenants of God. But many of these witnesses to the resurrection, beyond the twelve apostles, must have also been witnesses to at least portions of his earthly ministry, for which reason they were among those 500 to whom he had appeared. In the account of the events leading up to the triumphal march of Christ into Jerusalem, a week before the crucifixion, we read in Luke chapter 19 that upon his approaching, already near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of students rejoicing began to praise Yahweh with a great voice concerning all of the feats which they had seen, saying, Blessed is he coming, the king in the name of Yahweh, peace in heaven and honor in the heights. Their subsequent testimony, along with that of the apostles themselves, is the testimony of men to which John refers here. And now he continues by describing the greater testimony of God. Now this is the testimony of Yahweh, that he testified concerning his son. And before we read John's description of that testimony, or I should say account of that testimony in verse 10, we shall take another digression. While I usually do not give too much attention to late Greek manuscripts or to Latin manuscripts, it is interesting to see how at least many medieval Orthodox or Roman Catholics had intentionally added to the Word of God or to the testimony of the Apostles of Christ for their own pleasure or perhaps to promote some agenda or false doctrine, as we have seen here in verses 7 and 8. According to the apparatus of the 27th edition of the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecae, the 9th century Codex Athus Lore adds words to the end of verse 9, which we would translate to read, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And that's a Greek codex. 
However, in the manuscripts of the Latin Vulgate, as well as in the writings of the 8th century Spanish monk, Beatus of Liabana, so now we know where they probably came from, there is a 27-word interpolation, which is not found in any Greek manuscript, and which in English may read, Google Translate actually made this translation for me, He whom the Savior sent upon the earth, and the Son gave testimony on earth, perfecting the scriptures, and we testify that we have seen him, and we report to you that you may believe. And I did check that manually in a few places. At the time, this interpolation was significant, since Latin manuscripts had a much more prevalent use in the medieval church in Western Europe. They didn't even have very many Greek manuscripts until perhaps the 14th or 15th century. They only had a handful. Latin was the language of the church, and even the first English translators of the Bible had translated from Latin and not from Greek, because Latin was all they had. So how many medieval churchmen looked at all these Latin additions to the scriptures and believed them to be authentic. So while it was evidently not sufficient for medieval Roman Catholic priests, who in many ways had trampled upon the truth of God, John's explanation of the testimony of God should indeed be sufficient for us, where he next wrote that he believing in the Son of Yahweh has the testimony within him. Some manuscripts have within himself. Now we shall also pause here, halfway through verse 10, in order to reflect on this statement. He believing in the Son of God has the testimony within him. The manifestation of the Son of Yahweh, Yahshua Christ, was the fulfillment of the promise of a new covenant between Yahweh God and the children of Israel. This is an explicit subject of prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31. And according to the testimony of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, as well as that of Paul of Tarsus, which we have already cited here from Romans chapter 15, it is the manner in which Yahweh God had confirmed the promises made to the fathers. So we read from that chapter of Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts, having the testimony within him, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people, nobody else. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh. That's a Hebrew parallelism because your neighbor 
by definition, must be one of the children of thy people. Your neighbor must be your brother. Saying, Know Yahweh, for they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So not only did Yahweh promise to put his law into the hearts of the children of Israel, but also attested that they all shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them. Therefore, in John chapter 10, we read in the words of Christ, that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And in that same place, he informs us that he is also the me of Jeremiah chapter 31, where Yahweh said, they all shall know me, as he continued and said, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So to know Christ is to know Yahweh God himself. And therefore, later, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. Responding to the Apostle Thomas, we read, Yahshua says to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. And if you have known me, you should also know my Father. Even now you know and have seen him. By looking at Christ, Thomas has seen Yahweh the Father. Yahshua Christ himself is the truth of God because he is God. So immediately after Christ had answered Thomas, the Apostle Philip had asked Christ. I guess he didn't get what Christ said to Thomas. The Apostle Philip had asked Christ to show us the Father and it shall satisfy us. In response to that question, Christ once again answered and said, for so long a time am I with you, and you do not know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He had to repeat what he had just told Thomas. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? I'm sorry, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The words which I speak to you, I do not say by myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Christ is only the image of God's person. You should believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. But if not, on account of his works, you should believe. Because no man could possibly do those works. Not without the Spirit of God within them. If we had the testimony of Yahweh within us, that is because, as Yahweh promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, his law is written in our hearts, and we shall know him when we hear him, because his sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. But if we do not follow him, we accuse him, as John continues to explain the truth of God in the second half of verse 10. He not believing in Yahweh. 
makes him a liar because he does not believe in the testimony which Yahweh has testified concerning his son. The Codex Alexandrinus has the first clause of verse 10b, the second sentence of the verse, to read, he not believing in the son makes him a liar, where the pronoun for him seems out of place. Regardless of the difference, John is equating a belief in the son to a belief in God himself, while at the same time he is stating that a man who does not believe in the son who does believe in the Son, has that testimony within himself. If he doesn't believe in the Son, he makes God a liar. So he can't possibly believe God and not believe in the Son. As we have asserted in reference to earlier portions of this epistle, the Son, who is also the Messiah or Christ, is the promised Son of the second Psalm. From that and other scriptures, Paul of Tarsus had made a summary description of the nature of this son in the opening verses of his epistle to the Hebrews where he wrote, On many occasions and in many ways in past times, Yahweh had spoken to the fathers by the prophets. At the end of these days, he speaks to us by a son whom he has appointed heir of all through whom he also made the ages, who being the radiance of the honor and the express image of his substance, or person, speaking of people, and bearing all things in the word of his power, bringing about a purification of errors, or sins, if you will, has sat at the right hand of the majesty in the heights, becoming so much better than the messengers, or angels. He has inherited a name so much more distinguished beyond them. To which of the messengers did he ever say, you are my son, today I have engendered you, or begotten, if you will. And again, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me, Paul quoting the Psalms. Then again, when he introduces the firstborn into the inhabited world, he says, again citing the psalm, and all the messengers of Yahweh must worship him. So if anybody claims to be a messenger of God and is not a true Christian, meaning a descendant of the children of Israel who has accepted the gospel of Christ and who worships Christ, then he is a liar. He is not a messenger of God. He's instead a tool for Jewry, such as Muhammad, who was a Jew. However, it is not merely the word of Yahweh which testifies of the Son, but also the works which Yahweh had done in the Son. The people in Judea, who were blessed with the opportunity to observe the ministry of Christ and his works, were told by him not only that they must believe him, but also why they should believe him, and that they should not simply take him for his word. Rather, as he had told his adversaries, where it is recorded in John chapter 10, I have spoken to you and you do not believe. The works which I do in the name of my Father, these things testify concerning me. Yet many of his own people were also loath to accept him, as we read in Matthew chapter 13. 
Christ being in Galilee. And having come into his fatherland, he taught them in their assembly hall. So for them to be astonished, even to say, from where is this man? From where in this man is his wisdom and abilities? Is this not the son of a craftsman or a carpenter, if you will? Is not his mother called Mariam and his brothers, Jacob and Joseph and Simon and Judah? So they certainly weren't adopted children of Mary. They were her children. She was not a perpetual virgin. She had at least six children after him, those four sons. And are not his sisters all here with us? Maybe there were more than two sisters, but the plural insists on at least two. So from where in this man are all these things? And they were offended by him. But Yahshua said to them, A prophet is not dishonored except in his own fatherland and household. And he did not do many works of power there on account of their disbelief. Here we have already cited the words of Christ from John chapter 17, where he said to his disciples that you should believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. But if not, on account of his works, you should believe. Earlier in John chapter 5, Christ had once again explained that the testimony of God was in the works which he had done, where the subject was John the Baptist. And he said, But I have testimony greater than John, for the works which the Father gave to me in order that I shall complete them, these same works which I do should testify concerning me, that the Father sent me. And the Father who has sent me, he testified concerning me. And you have not ever yet heard his voice, nor have you seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, because he whom he has sent in him you do not believe. Those very last words are the very reason why John had written here in this epistle that he not believing in Yahweh makes him a liar, because he does not believe in the testimony, whether the written testimony or the miracles, which Yahweh has testified concerning his son. So Christ gave one other reason as to why men should believe him. Later in that same discourse in John chapter 5, where he said, Do not suppose that I shall accuse you before the Father. There is one who is accusing you, Moses, in whom you have hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he had written concerning me. But if in his writings you do not believe, how shall you believe my words? Professing to believe Moses, the enemies of Christ are convicted because Moses also wrote concerning him. John has described the truth of God, and now he describes the testimony borne by men who have been blessed with that truth. And this is the testimony that Yahweh has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He having the Son has the life, he not having the Son of Yahweh does not have the life. In Hosea chapter 6, there is a message of punishment and reconciliation for Israel. 
which we have already referred to here as Paul of Tarsus accepted it as an indication of the salvation which is in the resurrection of Christ. Come, let us return unto Yahweh. This is Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. For he has torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten in the punishment of Israel, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. For this Paul had also written, speaking of true Christian baptism in Romans chapter 6. So we were buried with him through that immersion unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the honor of the Father, so then we in newness of life should walk. Therefore, if united or planted together, being of the same blood, if united we have become in the likeness of his death, then also shall we be of his resurrection. Then, later on, in chapter 8 of the Epistle to the Romans, Paul wrote in a different way of the testimony which is within men, where he wrote, Indeed, as many as are led by the Spirit of Yahweh, these are the sons of Yahweh. Therefore you have not taken on a spirit of bondage anew to fear, but you have taken on a spirit of the position of sons, the adoption being for Israel, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, in which we cry, Father, Father. That adoption is merely the position of sons, not the state of being a son. That same spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of Yahweh. Contrasting those who have the testimony of God with those who do not, John is not offering men a choice. Rather, he is expressing a statement in fact. As we read in the words of Christ, recorded in Luke chapter 10, All things having been given over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is if not the Father, and who the Father is if not the Son, and the Son shall reveal it to whom he should determine. Man cannot know the Father without Christ, and Christ has chosen those men who may receive it. As he had also said in John chapter 6, No man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. He also said in John chapter 14 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So man cannot have either God or Christ, but must have both and must be chosen by Christ himself in order to have either. Yahshua Christ being Yahweh God incarnate, there is no part of or with God that is without Christ. Now John tells his readers how they themselves may know that they have life. These things I have written to you in order that you would see that you have eternal life to those believing in the name of the Son of Yahweh. The majority text has this verse to read, 
These things I have written to you, to those believing in the name of the Son of Yahweh, in order that you would see that you have eternal life, and in order that you would believe in the name of the Son of Yahweh. And of course, the addition is nonsense, but the interpolation is found in manuscripts as early as the 9th century. In the Codices Porphyrianus, that's actually like the Purple Codex, don't ask me why, and the Codex Athus Lore, the later of which also had that long interpolation following the text of verse 9 of this chapter. So even if it did not suffer some of the lengthy interpolations that are found in Latin copies, the King James Bible was subject to many interpolations found in medieval Greek manuscripts and there are many more than that, that didn't quite make it into the King James Version. So they were at least somewhat discerning about which interpolations they accepted. But they did accept many interpolations, and a lot of those interpolations they could not have known about. Because when the King James Bible was made, they basically only had a handful of manuscripts, a couple of dozen manuscripts from Erasmus and later from Stephanus, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps the Stephanus manuscripts were not even available to them. I've, I've written on that subject, but I don't quite remember the exact years. So I won't state anything empirical here, but they only had a small number of Greek manuscripts. Compared to the many manuscripts that we have today that were discovered in archaeology over the last few centuries. Addressing the text of John's statement here, believing in the name of the Son of Yahweh has implications which lead us to conclude that one really does not believe in his name if one does not accept and obey the entire scripture, which includes his commandments. So, as it is recorded in both Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, Christ himself said to his tempter, upon being challenged to turn stones into bread, that not by bread alone shall man live, but by every word going out through the mouth of Yahweh. Of course, according to the Gospel of John, Christ himself is that word made flesh, and he testified that for that reason, he is the bread of life. John chapter 6. Now John describes true Christian liberty once again, because there were two earlier mentions of Christian liberty in this gospel, in this epistle, I'm sorry. And this is the free spokenness which we had before him, that whatever we may ask in accordance with his will, he hears us. A lot of Christians, shallow Christians who don't really read their Bible, think that if they're Christians and God is true, that anything they pray for, they should receive. And that's simply a lie. They don't read all the passages which treat this subject. They only pick out one or two that leave this part out. But that doesn't invalidate this part. You have to read all the passages that treat a subject in order to understand it. In chapter 4 of this epistle, speaking of the love of God, John wrote, 
By this the love of God, the love, I'm sorry, is perfected among us, that we would have free spokenness in the day of judgment. Because just as he is, we also are in this society. And of course, that free spokenness does not negate this free spokenness and vice versa. Commenting on that passage, we said, in part, that here John asserts that Christian liberty is realized once love is perfected in the Christian, and love is in the law. So John relates it to the day of the judgment of God. We had asserted that love is in the law, not only because both Christ and the law command us to love one another, but also because keeping his commandments in the law is the primary way in which we should exhibit our love for one another. So in Revelation chapter 22, we read in the description of the city of God, blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Here John relates Christian liberty or free spokenness to prayers and the expectation that they may be answered if they are asked in accordance with his will. Christ himself set the example of that in his prayer in John chapter 17, where he wanted relief from his burdens, and he had said, not as I will, Father, but as you do. And therefore, he was not relieved of his burdens. His prayer was not answered, because, of course, he was setting an example in, for men that prayers can be answered so long as they are in accordance with the will of God. On the other hand, the Apostle James wrote explaining the contrary. In chapter 4 of his epistle, the contrary to what John had taught, of prayers which are clearly not in accordance with his will. And he said, you desire and you have not and it's not that James is contrary to John, it's that James is teaching more or less the other side of the coin, the negative side. You desire and you have not. You murder and strive and are not able to succeed. You fight in battle. You do not have for reason that you do not request. You request and you do not receive for reason that you request evil in order that you may be consumed in your pleasures. It's not the will of God for us to be consumed in our pleasures. So he's not going to answer those prayers, as James said here. So once again, we may see that a belief in Christ is nothing without obedience to Christ. As Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 15, that I am the vine, you are the branches. He who is abiding in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are not able to do anything. If one should not abide in me, he shall be cast outside like a branch that is withered. And they gather and they cast them into the fire and it burns. If you abide in me, and my word should abide in you, whatever you should desire, you may ask, and it shall come to you.
In this, my father is honored that you would bear much fruit and you would be my students. Abiding in Christ, John had already explained on many occasions in this epistle the need to keep the commandments of Christ. When you truly abide in Christ, you won't ask for things merely to satiate your own pleasures so that you could be engrossed in your pleasures. You'll just naturally know better once you truly understand his word. So having that as the basis for his confidence, John now says in verse 15, And if we know that he hears us, that which we may request, we know that we have the request which we asked from him. Keeping the commandments of Christ and loving one's brethren, one has license or free spokenness to ask and receive in order to satisfy one's needs, so long as those needs are within the will of Yahweh. So Christ also tied the answering of prayers to the keeping of his commandments in John chapter 14, where he is recorded as having said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he believing in me, the works which I do, he shall also do. And he shall do greater than these, because I go to the Father. And whatever you shall ask in my name, this I shall do, that the Father would be magnified in the Son. If you should ask me anything in my name, I shall do it. But then, in the very next verse, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you're not going to have one without the other. Now John speaks of something for which men should not ask. If one should see his brother committing an error, or perhaps sinning a sin, not resulting in death, he shall ask and he shall give life to him, to those doing wrong or sinning, not resulting in death. There is an error resulting in death. I do not speak concerning that, that one should ask. Now, it may be said that this sin resulting in death is a violation requiring death under the law. I don't accept that, the John, that John had meant that here as he's teaching the gospel of Christ and he's not teaching the law of Moses. And there is a difference. In chapter 6 of his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul had exhorted that they be found through all prayer and entreaty, worshiping at all times in spirit. And for this very thing, being watchful with all persistence and entreaty on behalf of all of the saints. But for sinners, Paul did not advise prayer. And rather, he only admonished the Corinthians to put them out of the assembly so that they would be judged by God. So he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but presently I have written to you not to associate with any brother if he is being designated a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or abusive or drunken or rapacious, not even to eat with such a wretch. What is it to me to judge those outside? Not at all should you judge those within you or among you. 
but those outside, Yahweh judges. You will expel the wicked from amongst yourselves. But Paul's words alone do not mean that such sins are unforgivable, even if sinners are to be put out of the assembly. If you study the second epistle to the Corinthians, the assembly at Corinth had decided to forgive the fornicator mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, even if Paul would not forgive them, but Paul accepted their decision. He must have at least convinced them that he was repentant. There is an unforgivable sin, and Yahshua Christ described it in a different manner, as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The following excerpt is from a sermon I presented at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in October of 2016, which was titled Scatterers and Gatherers. We cannot present all of our arguments and proof texts from that sermon, but perhaps we can repeat our key points here. Yahshua Christ links three concepts in Matthew chapter 12, which are scattering and gathering, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and good and bad trees. There should be no doubt that he is linking these concepts as the language fully demonstrates. Here we shall read from the King James Version, so that nobody could say I'm changing the Bible because I've been accused of that. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, Wherefore is for which reason? So he is linking scattering and gathering to what he is about to say. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Ghost, and in John chapter 14, 15, 16, Christ professed it, he was the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. And there we see that that concept is also linked to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here it is evident that if Christ informs us that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the sin which cannot be forgiven, then that is also the sin for which we should not ask in prayer for forgiveness for others. So we have to identify that sin. The language is important. Many Bible readers attempt to extricate verses 31 and 32 from their context. They want to take them out of context and define blasphemy of the Holy Spirit for themselves. But here Christ says that he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. And then he says, wherefore? From the phrase diatalto which means on which account or for which reason. 
saying, wherefore, he warns against blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and therefore blasphemy of the Holy Spirit must be something which is committed by those who scatter in opposition to Christ, who has come to gather, to gather the children of Israel. In another place, Yahshua Christ again mentions the act of gathering, along with good and corrupt trees, where he links these two concepts with two other cons these con these three concepts with two other concepts, which are the straight gate and the false prophets who are not truly sheep but who are really wolves. From Matthew chapter seven, enter ye in at the straight gate, the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And now we're back to scattering and gathering, which links these concepts to what we had just read in chapter 13. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Because Christ himself has linked these things together for us. It is not improper for us to list and evaluate all of these basic concepts in order to determine just what these allegories which he uses represent. First, we shall list the concepts once more, but all together this time. Scattering and gathering, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the straight gate, false prophets, and good and corrupt trees. While many men have attempted to understand each of these things by themselves, they can truly only be understood in relation to one another because Yahshua Christ had related these things to one another. Presenting that sermon in 2016, and of course it's online and it will be linked to this presentation, we discussed each of those five concepts at great length. I rarely speak at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People for less than two hours. They probably hate to see me come. <laughs> in order to arrive at the conclusion that the introduction of aliens into the assemblies of God and the race-mixing fornication, which naturally results from trying to convert people of other races to Christ, is indeed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and therefore... It is also the unforgivable sin. And a discussion of these five concepts makes that very clear. We're not going to repeat all of our arguments, as I had said earlier. So I hope that the segments which I chose to repeat do make our case here. In reference to scattering and gathering, we said in part, 
Yahshua Christ is recorded as having said in John chapter 10, Then Jesus said unto them, Again, verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door, skipping ahead, skipping past verse 8. I am the door, and by me, if any man shall enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The same Yahshua Christ also said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the same Yahshua Christ who said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine, Jeremiah chapter 31, is that God incarnate who said to the children of Israel in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So wherever there are prophecies of gathering in the Old Testament, we see that the gathering includes only those same 12 tribes. There are no prophecies of gathering for anybody else, and Christ came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is his gathering. And if you do not gather with him, in other words, if you do not gather sheep, then you are scattering because he who does not gather with him scatters. Then in reference to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we said that the Holy Spirit is one facet, one expression or manifestation of the being, which is Yahweh our God, who demands of the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 19 to be holy as he also is. And Yahweh and Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. A holy nation, in biblical terms, is a nation set apart for the purposes of Yahweh God, separated from all other nations. Therefore, Peter, knowing that his intended audience was the children of those same Israelites who had been dispersed in antiquity, and knowing that this plan of God's for the children of Israel had not changed with the new covenant, makes a direct appeal to the words of God at both Exodus chapter 19 verses 5 and 6 and Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, a prophecy which also concerns the children of Israel exclusively. This is found in his first epistle in 1 Peter chapter 2. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, as Yahweh told Hosea to announce to the children of Israel that they were not my people but are now the people of God. As Hosea was told that we're the sons of Israel, we're told they were not his people, to say unto them, ye are the children of the living God, which had not obtained mercy because they were put into captivity for their sin, but now have obtained mercy. 
Therefore, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which in Matthew chapter 12, Christ connects to both scattering and gathering and the making of a tree good or corrupt, must refer to speaking against the command that Israel be a separate and holy people. In reference to the straight gate, we said in part, Yahshua Christ is the door of the sheep. He only came for the sheep. No one gets to the Father except through him. So only the sheep, only the children of Israel, have access to God. Of course, Christ was not speaking to anyone but Israel when he spoke those parables. So no one else was ever a candidate. Israel alone has the promises of redemption and salvation mentioned throughout the Bible. As Paul states in Romans chapter 9, the city of God in the Revelation has on its gates the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. The gate is straight indeed. There were no other names for anybody else. In reference to false prophets, we said in part, Yahshua Christ linked the false prophets who are inwardly ravening wolves to those who would gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles in Matthew chapter 7. Let's read it once again. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the great, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and there be few that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening Jews. I'm sorry, I did that on purpose. Inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, the false prophets would be those universalists, that's really a euphemism, those universalists who would insist upon gathering something other than sheep to the sheepfold. These are those who would cause the scattering and destruction of the sheep. Christ never told his followers to feed anything but sheep. He told Peter three times in John chapter 21, Feed my sheep. They are not wolves, dogs, goats, pigs, or swine who are fed and then somehow become sheep. That concept is found nowhere in Scripture. Rather, they must be sheep in the first place, and then they may be fed. Finally, in reference to good and corrupt trees, and I probably abbreviated some of these explanations too much, but I have an entire page here. Psalm 80, the 80th Psalm, written by Asaph in the captivity, tells us that Israel is a vine planted by Yahweh. It links the sheep of Yahweh's pasture with the branches of the vine, which reinforces the fact that this last item in our list truly represents a concept related to sheep as opposed to goats, or grapes and figs as opposed to thorns and thistles. 
As the psalm tells us, the vine is the race of people that Yahweh brought out of Egypt. Christ later said to his apostles in John chapter 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. When the children of Israel were found mingling with the Canaanite races and adopting their idolatrous practices, Yahweh exclaimed in Isaiah chapter 17, Because thou hast forgotten the God of thy salvation, and hast not been mindful to the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants and set it, shall set it with strange slips. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 2, he spoke of their race-mixing adultery and said, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Israel taken into captivity is portrayed as a ruined vine, and also as a ruined fig tree. In several places, in Ezekiel, in Joel, and in Nahum, the prophet Nahum, there is a promise of cleansing in their captivity, where the word of, where the word of God says in Amos chapter 9, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. In Matthew chapter 12, immediately after explaining that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven, Yahshua Christ said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by its fruit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is speaking against Yahweh's command of separation for the children of Israel. Yahshua related that to the making of the tree either good or corrupt. The only way that man can make the tree, the vine of Israel, anything, is to breed and multiply, whereby he may sprout up as a noble vine or a strange slip. Therefore, when the ancient Israelites engaged in idolatry, they began race mixing, and they set Yahweh's vine with strange slips, or turned it into the degenerate plant of a strange vine. So it says of the sins of Israel in Hosea chapter 5 that they have dealt treacherously against Yahweh for they have begotten strange children. These strange slips and the leaves of this degenerate plant of a strange vine are bastards. Yahweh pronounces in the scripture at Deuteronomy chapter 23 that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to his tenth generation, he shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. The phrase tenth generation is an allegory, which means forever. Since after nine generations, a bastard is still a bastard, for there is no correcting such hybridization. Paul speaks of the chastisement of the children of Israel in Hebrews chapter 12. And he says, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Salvation is destined for sons and not for bastards, as Paul had explained in chapter 2 of that same epistle. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, 
to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. A bastard is not of one, or one would not be a bastard. Bastards, by the definition of the word, can only be of two or more. Therefore, Yahshua Christ said in Matthew chapter 15, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Every bastard is a race of a different kind, something which Yahweh God did not create. And that's the end of our citation from Scatterers and Gatherers. And therefore, John had said in chapter 1 of his gospel, which we have already cited here, but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority, which the children of Yahweh are to attain, to those believing in his name, not those from a mixed origin, nor from a desire of the flesh, nor from of the will of man, but they who have been born from Yahweh. The Apostle Paul taught that fornicators could repent and be accepted once they repented, and that is true. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Or do you not know that the unjust will not inherit the kingdom of Yahweh? Do not be led astray, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor railers, nor rapacious, shall inherit the kingdom of Yahweh. And these things some of you may have been, but you have cleansed yourselves. Moreover, you have been sanctified. Moreover, you have been deemed fit in the name of Prince Yahshua Christ and in the spirit of our God. Rather, race-mixing fornication is the unforgivable sin because, as it says in the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. And as Christ has said in Matthew chapter 15, every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Yahweh God created the Adamic man, but he did not create bastards. And therefore, as we read in the Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 3, as for the children of adulterers, the word adultery was also used in classical Greek for race mixing just like the word fornication was sometimes used. As for the children of adulterers, they shall not come to their perfection. The seed of an unrighteous bed shall be rooted out. And then a little further on in chapter 4, where we learn what he means. But the multiplying brood of the ungodly shall not thrive, nor take debrooding from bastard slips, nor lay any fast foundation. For though they flourish in branches for a time, yet standing not last, they shall be shaken by the wind, and through the force of winds they shall be rooted out. It is not by chance or coincidence that Yahshua Christ, along with both Solomon and Paul, and the prophets, had all used such similar terms to describe the end of bastards. Moving on to verse 17 of 1 John chapter 5. 
All wrongdoing is injustice, yet there is wrongdoing not resulting in death. And of course, the words wrongdoing and injustice may have been translated as injustice and sin. All injustice is sin, but that injustice must be reckoned according to the laws of God and not the precepts of men. Therefore, Christ is recorded in Matthew chapter 15 as having said to his adversaries, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy concerning you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, and vainly do they worship me, teaching for education the commandments of men. Revisiting the words of Christ concerning blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In yet another way, we may see how John was correct earlier in this epistle, in chapter 3, where he attested that each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing because his seed abides in him and he is not able to do wrong because from of Yahweh he has been born. This is evident where Christ had said, For this reason I say to you, Every error or sin and blasphemy shall be remitted or forgiven for men, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit shall not be remitted. And whoever should speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be remitted for him. But whoever should speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be remitted for him, neither in this age nor in that which is coming speak about being resurrected to eternal contempt, as it says in Daniel. So as we try to explain in Scatterers and Gatherers, the mere existence of a bastard is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and the bastard cannot have life, and therefore race-mixing fornication is the sin resulting in death. It cannot be said of a bastard that his seed is in him since a bastard comes from a joining of diverse seeds, which Yahweh God did not create. As for every other sin, the Adamic man cannot sin because his seed is in him, and in the end, his sin will not be imputed to him for that very reason. A bastard coming from a joining of diverse seeds results in a creature, which Yahweh God did not create. It can't have life. Yahweh didn't create it. This is the ultimate truth of God which John has endeavored to teach throughout this epistle. So for that same reason, John continues and expresses that same concept once again. For we know that each who has been born from of Yahweh does not do wrong. Rather, he born from of Yahweh keeps himself and the evil one does not touch him. They could destroy the body, but they cannot destroy the spirit. If we keep ourselves, his seed is in us, and we shall be forgiven our sins, forgiven our sins, as John explained in chapter 2 of this epistle, that even if we sin, we have a propitiation for our sins in Yahshua Christ. For those who commit the act of race-mixing fornication, the evil one has touched them because the resulting offspring is from of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a bastard which was not created by Yahweh, 
And therefore, not being engendered from above, it can have no part with him. John continues. We know that we are from of Yahweh, and the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. As John wrote here in verse 13, these things I have written to you in order that you would see that you have eternal life. So here, because he believes that his readers are of the blood, that they believe Christ, and that they keep his commandments and love one another, as he has explained throughout this epistle, with confidence he says that we know that we are from of Yahweh. The whole society or world is in the power of the evil ones. Through the fallen angels, where the world outside of the Garden of God was called Nod, which is wandering or sin, and then on account of the disobedience of Adam and the later disobedience of the children of Israel, the enemies of God and Christ had come to control the entire world. Paganism had prevailed, and in his epistle to the Colossians, Paul had referred to that as the worshipping of angels, ostensibly, meaning fallen angels. Yet the world to John was only the world of the children of Israel. As Solomon had said in chapter 18 of his wisdom, for in the long garment was the whole world, and in the four rows of the stones was the glory of the Father's graven. The children of God, scattered abroad, were still nearly all pagans in the time of John, as John wrote this epistle. So they were in the power of the evil one. In Luke chapter 4, we read, In the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, and bringing him up, he showed him all of the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. Then the false accuser, or devil, if you will, said to him, I will give to you the authority over all this and their honor, because to me it was delivered and to whomever I wish I could give it. Therefore, if you would worship before me, it shall all be yours. And replying, Yahshua said to him, It is written, Yahweh your God you shall worship and you shall serve him only. While aspects of that account, including the nature of the devil, the nature and identity of the devil, are obscure, they certainly are quite obscure, we do not believe that this devil was some demon. And the enemies of Christ have dominated at least most of the known world since before the fall of Adam. In Acts chapter 26, Polytarsus had attested that for the hope of the promise having been made by God to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes serving in an earnest night and day hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans. Then later in the chapter, he describes his mission to those same twelve tribes, attesting that Christ had told him, For this have I appeared to you, for you to be a chosen assistant and witness, both of the things you have seen by me and of the things I shall reveal you, taking you out from among the people and from the nations to whom I send you. 
from the nations to whom I send you, the language establishes that they are of the same blood. Taking Paul out from the nations to whom I send you, while Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin and a Judean, to open their eyes, for which to turn them from darkness to light, and from the authority of the adversary to God, for them to receive a remission of errors and a portion with those being sanctified by the faith which is in me. When the adversaries of Christ had arrested him, and he knew that his crucifixion was imminent, he said to them, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Later, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul uses a similar allegory to describe the same concept which John professes here, that the whole society lies in the power of the evil one. And he says, put on the full armor of Yahweh for you to be able to stand against the methods of the false accuser or devil. Because for us, the struggle is not against blood and flesh but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. The heavenly places are the governments and institutions of men. Turning these scattered children of Israel from darkness to the light of Christ, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5 that no one must deceive you with empty words. For on account of these things, the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you must not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but are now light in the prince. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justness and truth, scrutinizing what is acceptable to the prince and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even reprove them for the things being done by them secretly, usually with somebody's little sons, is disgraceful even to speak of. Now all things being reproved by the light are made manifest for everything being made manifest is light. I'm tripping over the words made manifest. I'm sorry. Therefore, he says, awaken you who are sleeping and rise up from among the dead and Christ shall shine upon you. The dead being all the people around us who have not yet accepted Christ of our own kin. So it is evident that if the children of Israel turn to obedience in Christ, the world would no longer be in the power of the evil one. Evidently, the Jews may continue to prevail over men until that moment finally arrives or until Christ himself finally intervenes on their behalf. The penultimate verse in this first epistle of John offers an assurance. Yet we know that the Son of Yahweh has come and gave to us an understanding that we may know the truth, and we are in the truth. Among the number of his son, Yahshua Christ, he is the true and eternal life. Just as Paul assured his readers that we have 
the mind of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that we may destruct, instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ, by which we may understand Yahweh God. Having the mind of Christ, we have it in his gospel, which illuminates the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. By that, we may know God through the gospel, for they all shall know me. If we have his spirit, we will understand the gospel of Christ, and we will understand the Old Testament, as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, perhaps in chapter 3, but perhaps that's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that we can only take off that veil, that allegorical veil upon the face of Moses, if we have and believe the gospel of Christ. So the Old Testament is only for Christians. Second Corinthians chapter 3. I'm sorry. In spite of having the word of God, we know the truth and we are in the truth among the number of his son, Yahshua Christ. In spite of all of the lies of the evil one, which are the lies of the Antichrist Jews, Yahweh God is true. And Yahshua Christ is the physical expression of the truth of God, being Yahweh God incarnate. If we are of the spirit and the blood, if his seed is in us, and if we were engendered by him, as John has explained throughout this epistle, then by believing him and keeping his commandments while loving our brethren, we can know that we are in the truth of God. In this corrupted world, which is in the control of the enemies of God, there is no other way. So forget the stupid 23andMe DNA test and stop sending your money to the fucking Jews. On that same note, John ends his epistle with an admonition. Children, keep yourselves from idols. And yes, science can be an idol too. The Nestle Aland Novum Testament Novum Testamentum Grecae. There's an interesting anomaly in the manuscripts here. The NA27 has children keep themselves from idols, which is sort of weird. And the text where we have yourselves follows the majority text where we have yourselves. The ancient codices the preponderance of the ancient manuscripts have themselves, which is strange. The Codices Alexandrinus and Vaticanus Grecus 2061 have yourselves, and those are the ones that we followed. Usually when there are differences among the manuscripts, those are the ones which we do not follow. We prefer the readings from the Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, not because we are fans of those codices, but because in all of my readings of New Testament Greek, I simply find them to be more credible and more reliable. So this verse is an anomaly. Keep yourselves from idols. The love of the world is idolatry. And love, as it is defined by the world, is also idolatry. 
Therefore, James warns in chapter 4 of his epistle, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. For this, Christ himself had said, as it is in John chapter 12, that he that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. For that same reason John wrote in chapter 2 of this epistle, admonishing his readers and saying, Do not love the society, nor the things in society. If one should love the society, if one is an idolater, the love of the Father is not in him. Then concerning idolatry, he said in the very next verse of that chapter, Because all which is in society, the desire of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pretense of life, is not from of the Father, but is from of society. And society passes on and its desire, but he doing the will of Yahweh abides forever. Keep yourselves from idols, something which even in today's day and age is very easy to slip into because we don't even realize that some of the things which we adore or pursue are actually idols. This concludes our commentary on the first epistle of John. We will return in the near future with commentaries on his final two epistles, which are both rather brief. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.